Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Our title is Seeing God in the Eyes of Your Enemy. Seeing God in the Eyes of Your Enemy. This is especially important as we are one week before the United States election and are living in, at least here in this country, uh, in the most polarized, politicized environment that has been rightly said in a generation. Regardless of who wins, however, this polarization will continue uh, to exist. But uh, again, as many of you know from around the world, this is not just our issue here in the United States. It's global. And that's why today's theme is so important. And I touched on it in our recent you know, three-part podcast on six radical invitations from God for us in our politicized world. But I knew uh, that today needed to be done, and I've been holding it for quite a while, and I've been very excited about today's podcast. And uh, because I, I believe this is one of the most critical issues for the church and leadership uh, for the next 5, 10, 15, 25 years for the generation that's coming. Uh, because the diversity, the secularization, the polarization of the world is only going to increase uh, into the next generation. And so how we equip our people and how we function in the midst of all this is going to be a critical issue for the mission of the church in the world. So today I want to introduce you to the work of Martin Buber. Uh, and uh, who was a uh, well-known German-Jewish theologian and writer in the early 20th century. Uh, and if you can get today, in terms of what, what I'm going to share with you today, uh, I promise you it's, it's going to change your life. Now, to live it out, it's going to take a bit of time. But if you can get the revelation from Jesus here uh, that I think Buber expressed very creatively, it'll change your marriage, your singleness, your leadership, your parenting, the culture you're building your ministry, everything you touch. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to recommend at the end of the podcast for you to go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash lead. So just note that somewhere, www.emotionallyhealthy.org slash lead. I'm going to send you there at the end of the podcast and you'll see why it's so important. Now, Jesus repeatedly connected true spirituality as both loving God and loving people. Uh, that is, you know, being merciful, approachable, safe, kind to enemies, non-judgmental. In fact, for Jesus, the degree to which we love people, especially our, especially our enemies, is the degree to which we actually love God and get the nature of his kingdom. And we see this in places like, you know, when they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? They wanted one great commandment. Uh, Jesus gave them two, you know, love God and love your neighbor. And he, you, again, they're inseparable. Then he followed it up with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and then in the great reversal in the Sermon on the Mount, when uh, Jesus said, you know, if you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar in worship, and remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to them. Uh, and then come and offer your gift back to God. And so in, in, in the first century, you know, Orthodox rabbis taught that if you're going, if, you're, if your brother has something against you or sister, uh, complete your worship and then go get reconciled. Jesus reversed that and said, no, no, no. If your brother or just got something against you, uh, leave worship and get reconciled and then come back. In other words, for him, it was people uh, and worship. Again, it was people first uh, in terms of how we function in our worship. Same thing with Matthew's house with the tax collectors and sinners as he's eating there. Um, the Pharisees are condemning him. They're murmuring about him. And Jesus quotes Hosea 6, basically saying, you don't get it. Uh, uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he quotes Hosea, I desire mercy, not 
sacrifice. And again, it's love for people that is the outworking of our love for God. And of course, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, had to deal with a very zealous, anointed, gifted church filled with zeal uh, who he said, if you don't have love, you may have faith to move mountains and give all your money to the poor and be incredibly gifted, but um, you're disconnected spiritually and what you're doing is worth nothing. So uh, it's it's a very clear teaching uh, in the New Testament. However, for some reason, I can think of many, it doesn't actually translate into the way we're functioning in so many of our churches where it's just so easy for people to live as emotional infants uh, and quote, growing in zeal and love for God, but not actually growing in zeal and love for people. I know because I, that's me. Uh, that was me for, for many, many years. Uh, so let me approach this topic of seeing God in the eyes of your enemies uh, through Martin Buber and his work and his life. And so it was 1914, the year that World War I broke out in Europe, a young man came to visit Martin Buber. Now he was a theologian, a Hasidic, um, and uh, he had had a morning filled with, uh, he called it religious enthusiasm, you know, you know, in the spirit, you know, and this man came to see him in the afternoon, young man, and uh, but Buber was so caught up in God, in a sense, in his revelations, but he wasn't really present to this young man. And then he found out later the guy went and committed suicide. Um, and so now Buber considered himself deeply religious, uh, with you know many mystical experiences that lift him lifted him out of the ordinary earthly experiences of life. And uh, but he was more concerned about the eternal than the temporal and ecstasy than the kind of daily experience. And uh, but his life changed after that event in 1914. Actually, it happened to him more than once. But he realized he wasn't fully present to that young man, and he was giving him only his leftovers, and he was only partially engaged with him. And for him, it was a judgment on his whole way of life. And that it's possible, he realized, that profound spiritual experiences, what Paul would say, faith to move mountains, speaking in the tongues of angels, but basically, the faith is worth nothing if one is not deeply present to people. And uh, so over the next number of years, uh, uh, he wrote a book called I and Thou. It was a groundbreaking classic. It was first published in 1923, uh, just five years, a few years after the end of World War One. And so I, I very much relate to Martin Buber uh, and his experience with that young man because for the first 17 years of my Christian life, uh, I was on fire, you know, for God, but I was very distracted and preoccupied in terms of being with people. And I missed it. I, I, I missed the central teaching of the gospel, uh, the teaching of Jesus around love for individuals and love for God are so inextricably linked that they're inseparable. And I, I realized a shadow side of especially Western um, Christianity of grow that church, you know, the mission, the mission, the mission. And so, uh, people just uh, being present to people just wasn't a thrust, and, and, I, and I realized I missed it. And so Martin Buber's framework is helpful for us today, and I want to introduce you to it uh, as he defined a, a way of understanding relationships in two different ways, I-it and I-thou, uh, two word pairs, I-it and I-thou. And so there are two distinct ways of being with people in the world. And so in an I-it relationship with people, I, tr I treat people like objects. Uh, and so, for example, I'm distracted, I'm goal-oriented. Uh, I see people more as an object or a means to an end. I treat them as an it. Um, 
versus an I-thou relationship, I actually see people as sacred and holy image bearers different than me uh, in, in an I-thou relationship. Rather than be distracted and goal-oriented, which is I-it, I'm actually fully attentive and listening. Uh, and, and, and an I-it relationship, I see people as, a, as an extension of me. I'm enmeshed. Uh, an I-thou relationship, I, I see them as unique and, and separate. Uh, an I-it relationship, I'm judgmental. Uh, my acceptance is conditional based on them seeing things the way I see them. In an I-thou relationship, there's a radical acceptance of who they are, uh, even if they don't see the world as I see it. In an I-it relationship, it's lots of monologue, uh, debating, making my point. In I-thou relationships, there's kind of this dialogue, there's this curiosity to help me more, help me understand. Uh, in an I-it relationship, I'm closed. I'm not really interested in learning or changing. In an I-thou relationship, I'm actually open and willing to change. So what does it look like? An I, it looks like this. You know, I, I can't listen to people from, from a different political party who are going to vote differently than I do, who see the world differently than I do. And I, I, I see them as evil and I can't, I can't even be in the same room as them. And so uh, uh, that's one I, it way it looks. Or I just, I just finished reading a, a novel on uh, the Vietnam War. And I realized, oh my gosh, it's, it's countries. We do this with other countries, with ethnic groups within countries. Um, we do it with uh, people in certain professions, uh, you know, lawyers or real estate agents or, or, the ch or certain churches or denominations or people who have even become heretics. And it was actually was the application of loving your enemies was partially about even the early church towards people who are considered, you know, heretics. Uh, but, you know, we, we label people, treat them as it's. Uh, it's, it can be as simple as when I'm in a conversation with someone, I'm, I may be maintaining eye contact, uh, but actually my mind is focused on what am I going to say next to rebut what they're saying. It can be like right now I'm doing this podcast and I'm more concerned about the flow of my notes here uh, and the quality of this podcast or how it's going to come off to you versus actually connecting with you, even though I'm sitting here in front of my computer, you know, with a little microphone. Uh or I can size people up based on, you know, where they're from, what country they're from, or uh, what schools they attended, or what kind of profession they have, or how much money they have, or what's their Enneagram number, or the size of their ministry. I treat them as an it. Uh, and it, I, it relationships are, you know, I'm in a conversation with someone, but I, I feel like my responsibility is to correct their faulty theology, or at least faulty thinking, or views about life. Um but an I-thou relationship is really very different because uh, in an I-thou relationship, I actually see a person as unrepeatable, a, a treasure, an image bearer of the living God. Uh, they're sacred and created from the very breath of God. And so I actually welcome their otherness and I acknowledge they're different than me. And so I'm not trying to get something from them or treat them as an extension of myself. They're not a hammer uh, or a phone that I'm using to get something done. Uh, they're actually a, a person. And uh, I, I come to them without a mask or a pretense. I'm, 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 I'm trying to understand them and be available. And so we're talking about an I that was a living relationship, whole person to whole person. And I like what Buber said. He says, all real life is meeting, a meeting. Um, but an I-thou relationship can only exist between two people willing to connect across their differences. In fact, he said, when that happens, God fills that space and it becomes sacred space. So, so, so in, in fact, the central 
thesis of Martin Buber's work was that the I-thou relationship between persons reflects the I-thou relationship that we have with God. In other words, when we have a genuine relationship with a person as a thou, we see them that way, it actually reveals traces of how God sees us as the you know, eternal thou. That's why it's so powerful when two people listen to each other. In fact, Jerry and I had our first I-thou experience eight years into our marriage. And we were friends eight years before we got married. And it actually happened in a therapist's office. And we, we, he kind of created a safe environment for us. And we did a skill that we call today incarnational listening. And it changed our whole life. Uh, in fact, it launched what we call today Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. This podcast wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for that I-thou encounter we had. And uh, it profoundly changed us. I love the story when Martin Buber, uh, again, he was, understand, he was a Jewish man who had suffered pogroms and persecution over decades in Eastern European has you know, Hasidic life. He was under Hitler's Germany. And then later in life, he met T.S. Eliot. Now, T.S. Eliot was a you know, Nobel Prize winner of literature, poet, a convert to the Anglican Church in England. I mean, he was a totally different background. And many expected it to be a really difficult meeting for Buber because their histories, their religious beliefs, their circle of friends were just so dissimilar, so different. So at the end of their meeting, they asked Buber, uh, how did you, how'd you feel about his opinions that were so different than yours. And he, he replied this, and it gives us a window into what it means to treat a person as a thou versus an it. He said this, when I meet a man, I am not concerned with opinions, but with the man. I'm not concerned with opinions, I'm concerned with the man. They're very, very profound, it's a beautiful story. But again, it's easier said than done in a polarized culture like we're living in today. So there's really three questions that I wanna, I wanna offer you to today as a pathway to move your own life from I, it to I, thou. Uh, because again, we have to get it ourselves or we're gonna give it away to other people. And it's very powerful. And um, I actually got these from, from, I adapted these from David Benner's work uh, and uh, on Martin Buber. So it's just fascinating and found in his book, Soulful Spirituality. But here's the three, three questions. Am I fully present or am I distracted? That's the first question. Second question is, am I loving or judging? And the third question is, am I open or closed to being changed? And those three questions, as you go into any encounter with anyone, if you can ask yourself those three questions, uh, it will help you uh, see God in the eyes of your enemy and, uh, and actually, actually have an I-thou encounter versus an I-it. So let's just take them briefly one at a time. The first question, am I fully present or am I distracted? Am I fully present or distracted? Now, I have a good touch of ADHD. Uh, I couldn't sit still all through the uh, first 12 years of education. Uh, my middle name is distractible. And it's not unusual for me to have three or four ideas floating around in my brain at the same time and miss what's actually in front of me. In fact, there was nothing in my history to be present to anyone. Uh, I, again, I never had the experience of, I could, that I can remember growing up of someone being present to me. Uh, and I've grown a lot in this area, but it does remain critical that I ask myself this question often, am I fully present with this person or am I distracted before I enter into a conversation, um, especially when I'm with someone who thinks very differently than I do. Now, research, of course, has shown over the last 15, 25 years how uh, much less we are able to maintain eye contact and connect emotionally with people. Uh, technology such as smartphone, social media has impacted us 
in every, you know, in so many ways. And so from the workplace to family life, to parenting, to friendships, to schools, dating, you name it, churches, people's ability to actually be fully present has lessened. And there's, there's really excellent uh, social science research on how that's, you know, unfolded over the years. Uh, but again, as I said earlier, is when Jerry and I were actually in a therapist's office and a crisis in our marriage in 1996, when I actually had the experience of someone being present to me, first it was the therapist, and then it was actually Jerry, uh, and it was life-changing uh, for me. So the first question I ask myself is, am I fully present? Or again, am I distracted? The second question uh, is a bit more difficult is, am I coming into this conversation? Am I loving or am I judging? Am I loving or am I judging? So when you ask people outside the church about how would they describe Christians, uh, the first word that generally comes out is they're judgmental. Uh, and sadly, uh, they're right. Uh, we judge. We just we judge our spouses for not doing life our way. We judge our close friends because they have politics different than us. We judge our, our children, our adult children, for making choices we think they shouldn't. We judge our coworkers for not doing their jobs uh, the way we'd like them to do their jobs. We judge our neighbors uh, when they're not responsive to the gospel. We judge Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and Sikhs and other faiths, agnostics uh, and atheists for not following Jesus. Um, we judge younger generations for being making choices that we don't approve of. We judge older generations for making choices we don't approve of. We judge people from different social classes, uh, from different races. We judge different ethnicities. We judge appearances. We judge people's education, too much of it or a lack of it. Uh, we judge countries uh, based on their leaders and politics. And we judge people for dressing up, dressing down, movies they watch, the cars they buy, the music they listen to. Uh, we judge people based on their Enneagram number and, of course, based on our Enneagram number. And, and uh, so what happens is we turn differences into issues of moral superiority and we create these ways to categorize people. And we end up diminishing people and actually diminishing ourselves. That's why I like to, I like to say I'm a recovering judgeaholic. Uh, we're all judgeaholics. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I would like everyone to think like I do or act like I do or believe like I do. Uh, my family trained me to be judgmental uh, growing up. And uh, then the church trained me as well. And so it was just normal to disapprove of anyone who was different and then try to get them to change, to see the world as I do. So you may be saying, well, well, Pete, hold on a second. Isn't our mission as Jesus followers to want people to believe as we do? Aren't we supposed to try to make people change? The answer is yes and, and no. Uh, yeah, we, we want people to know the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. We want people to know him. But it's not our mission to judge people, uh, even in the name of standing up for truth, because when we judge people, we treat them as an object. Only God, uh, the Lord God Almighty, who with a knowledge and a love infinitely greater than ours, has the right and the wisdom to judge another person. And uh, cr crossing that line, and Karl Barth talked about this, and Bonhoeffer talked about this. I mentioned it in the last week's podcast. It leads us to the root of original sin. Uh, in fact, Karl Barth wrote about how the, the sin, the root of sin is the arrogance in which we want, man wants to be his own and his neighbor's judge. And uh, there's something in that Genesis 3 text about judgmentalism and it's deep. So when we come to every conversation, so the invitation is to not judge, but actually to love, to come to a conversation curious, even when people are making choices that we consider 
tragic or foolish or biblically wrong. Now, this can range to why a person's had gender reconstructive surgery or, you know, why, why they converted to Buddhism or why they left the church and why they moved in with their partner. Um, because the first, our first task as, as leaders and followers of Jesus is to see each person as a thou and sincerely asking, tell me more. Help me understand how you see the world and how you actually came to that decision uh, or conclusion. So again, the first two questions, am I fully present or distracted? Am I loving or judging? And the third question now is the most difficult, which is, am I open or closed to being changed? Am I open or closed to being changed? Now, this question's a deal breaker for most people, especially if the other person is not a Christian and you are. Why should I be open to being changed, especially when it's about something we consider a value and we know the other person's wrong? Now, the reason we need to be open to be changed is because it's a requirement for, for a dialogue, for a relationship. And if you're close to being changed, uh, basically, it's a one-sided monologue. Now, you may be wondering, well, Pete, it sounds like anything goes. Isn't there absolute truth? Um, and of course, the answer is, of course. Uh, and I'm passionate, again, for people who know Jesus, and I'm committed to biblical Christianity. But it's also biblical to engage another person as unrepeatable and as an image bearer of God who's sacred and holy and bears the breath of God. And so I come open. And so I always assume I can learn some things from them and be changed by them. I can receive gifts from them. What's interesting is if you look at church history, and uh, that was a given in, in much of church history. And I'll just give you two little examples here. Uh, one is John Calvin. And you know he wrote about the light of truth shining in the thoughts of ancient Greek and Roman pagan thinkers. And though he considered them pagan, he commended their insights. And I'll just read you a little quote from him. He said this, whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. And he said, if we disregard the spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth, we, we shall neither reject the truth itself, nor despise in wherever it shall appear, unless we wish to dishonor the spirit of God. Fascinating. In fact, Abraham Kuyper in the 19th century affirmed God's spirit operating through unbelievers. Uh, insisting that the activity of the Holy Spirit was a common grace at work in human lives. And I could go on and on. It's uh, fascinating to uh, go into that whole theme of God at work in common grace. But let's face it, differentness makes us uncomfortable. And uh, we really believe that everyone else needs to change, not so much us. And yet God calls us to, to be with people and to love people who experience the world differently than we do. And we can do that without compromising our faith in Jesus. Uh, but we come into a conversation as humble learners, open to true dialogue and to be changed. It's actually getting into now differentiation, which is a whole other theme, but it's difficult. Listen, it's difficult in my marriage with Jerry, whom I've been with for 36 years. I mean, Jerry and I had a conflict just the other day in our backyard as we were making a little fire we had uh, four other people here, and we were chatting around a fire. 
and the way I was handling the fire and I was kind of like just recklessly playing with it. Uh, and uh, we ended up in a conflict and uh, I did, I wanted to pout and sulk and blame her and, you know, our interaction ended poorly that night. And, uh, but we, I asked myself the three questions. Can I be present and not distracted? Can I be loving and not judgmental? And can I be open rather than closed to being changed? Listen, it was a discipleship moment for me. Uh, and of course, it's that final question that's always the most difficult. Can I be open rather than closed to being changed through this conversation? Am I willing to be transformed by her perspective and experience? Now, my pride said no. Um, but of course, Jesus inside of me, to, you know, the Holy Spirit's nudging me, yes. So I did initiate a conversation with her and uh, I listened. You know, she shared her perspective and uh try not defending myself and the tension just dissipated. But again, those are, that's, that was my discipleship moment, you know, this past week. And again, most of us, we were never discipled. This wasn't a value and priority to disciple people in, in loving others and seeing God in our enemies. And so uh, I, I want to close with this. Now, listen, th those three questions are worth holding on to. And I actually spent a good bulk of a chapter writing on this in, in uh, the upcoming Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book. But the whole EH Emotionally Healthy Relationships course, um, when, we, when we put together uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, uh, Jerry and I had spent 19 years, almost 20 years, developing skills to help people love others. Uh, like training wheels on a bicycle because we are supposed to be the best lovers on the face of the earth rather than people saying oh those christians are so judgmental really supposed to be people look at us and say those christians i've never met anybody like them uh the best lovers on the face of the earth the best listeners on the face of the earth uh because we're, we're we're the ones called to build counter-cultural communities that relate maturely uh to one another and and actually this is the greatest gift we can give the world is that the love of Jesus flowing out of us to the world. So we spend tens of thousands of dollars to get trained in our, in our, in our jobs and our skills, our vocations, but we spend very, very little time uh, in our churches and of course the marketplace and schools and growing into an emotionally mature adult who loves other people well. How do I do this I thou thing? And I think we under, I, don't, I know we underestimate the depth of our bad habits, our judgmentalism. And so uh, in, in our effort, in our desire to contribute to the local church around the world and, and in, for us as leaders and then to equip our, our churches and build cultures that are really people that are going into their jobs and families and neighborhoods uh, and interacting with other religions and political views and actually being like Jesus and treating folks as an I-thou, that requires intentional discipleship. Uh, and... Uh, as Jerry and I have in, engaged these skills uh, over the last 1920, or I, I last 26 to 27 years, it's transformed our not just our marriage and our parenting uh, and our family, but actually uh, our, it transformed our church and now thousands of churches around the world. And so uh, I want to invite you to, to learn and check out the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course, and um, which, which distills the eight core skills in treating people as a thou. Um, just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash lead. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash lead. 
uh, because I truly believe that practically walking out what we believe and building a countercultural community where people treat others, we treat people as thou's, not it's, is really is perhaps the greatest gift we can give the world in the name of Jesus uh, and for the mission of the church. And uh, so, again, there's free training available to you. Uh, our mission is to equip you, to equip your people, uh, because, friends, God so loved the world, he gave his only son for her. And so out of that, the church has been birthed by the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, and here we are. And there is perhaps, uh, in my humble opinion, nothing more important in the world than that we're building local churches that are light and salt in our communities all over the world that point to the glory of God in Jesus. Uh, And that involves us equipping uh, our people to see him in the eyes of our enemies. These are discipleship moments as thou's and not its, uh, that Christ might be glorified. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you this day. And may God give you some opportunities today to be present to someone and to learn from someone and to actually be changed by someone with whom you have very little in common. So bless you. Have a great day. God bless.